Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. The difficulty posed by the emergence of Omicron is that we're still really in the midst of the Delta wave. Monitoring hospitalisations will be a key measure to assess the risk posed by Omicron. And the fully vaccinated and those who have recovered from prior infection, if they're only shown to develop mild flu or cold-like symptoms, then I think it will be a good outcome in terms of you know, the reopening can continue. Just as the global economy started hitting its reopening stride, uncertainty has returned with news of the Omicron variant. First identified in Botswana, Omicron spread to South Africa where the alarm was raised on the 24th of November. Since then, the variant has been confirmed in almost 40 other countries. Now, with around 60% of the global population fully vaccinated, the question is, how big a threat is this? I'm Alison Savas, Client Portfolio Manager. Joining me today is Dr. Nick Cameron, Antipodes Portfolio Manager of Healthcare, who will share his expert view on the Omicron variant, as well as delve into some of the key healthcare positions in the Antipodes Global Portfolios. Now, Nick has a PhD in Molecular Biology, so we are in safe hands for this episode. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, Alison. Good to be back. Nick, you know, it feels a little bit like deja vu with borders starting to close again and social restrictions back in place in various countries around the world. And on top of that, we have, you know, winter has arrived in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, you've been on the front foot of COVID-19 developments, you know, really from the outset. So to start off, can you take us through how the Omicron variant differs from the other COVID-19 variants that we've seen? Sure. Well, this Omicron variant contains many more mutations or changes in the virus than what we have seen in the previous variants. It has around 30 mutations in the spike protein, and many of these are novel. Now, just remember the spike protein is the key protein responsible and also necessary for the virus to enter or infect cells and cause symptoms. So some of the mutations in the Omicron variant are known from previous variants that we've seen, but it's these many new ones or novel ones uh, that has got scientists uh, concerned. So we haven't seen a variant with this number of mutations in the critical area of the spike protein before. And so the fear is that just the sheer number and difference of these mutations may render current vaccines less effective against this particular variant. Now, we've had some recent news on, on the vaccines, which I'm, I'm sure we'll cover in a sec. Okay, so, you know, we have Omicron cases spiking in South Africa at, at a faster rate versus prior waves, and the variant is now confirmed in 38 other countries. So what does this tell us about the severity and transmissibility of this variant? Well, in a, in a really simple answer to your question, it appears uh, Omicron is a highly transmissible variant. But thankfully, the early signs uh, suggest that disease severity may not be any worse than Delta or previous strains. So looking to South Africa, Omicron has quickly become the dominant strain in the Hauteng province. And the infection or growth rate of infections appears to be much higher or more rapid than in, pre in previous waves. But the important trend that we're seeing is that hospital admissions are only really tracking in line with the prior waves. And so far, the hospitalised patients in Hauteng generally are 
unvaccinated. And the vaccination rate in this province is also relatively low at only around 40% being fully vaccinated. Also, most of the hospitalised cases have been in the younger unvaccinated people, which very broadly speaking, we would expect to have milder illness anyway, which sort of helps to explain why hospitalisations at this early stage still appear to be fairly muted. Uh, in a recent uh, data release from the South African Medical Research Council, uh, it was found that in looking at these hospitalised uh, Omicron-infected patients, most only had mild symptoms. And in fact, very few required supplemental oxygen, very few developed the COVID pneumonia, and very few, in fact, needed high-level care or intensive care. So that's pretty encouraging, but you know, we're, we're still cautious because it's far from definitive. It was based on a small sample size and it's still early days. So I think we still will be tracking the hospitalizations and disease severity very closely there. And I think um, in terms of transmissibility and, you know, what it means, I think given the borders with South Africa had been open with many countries for quite some time uh, prior to our knowledge of the existence of this variant. So I think it's no surprise that you know, we're seeing it pop up all around the world. And it's important to remember that, you know, yes, while it may appear to be more transmissible than previous variants, it doesn't necessarily mean its virulence or capacity to cause more severe disease is also increased. Mm. Now, you know, the early data increasingly suggests that that the current vaccines may not provide the same level of protection against the Omicron variant. Mm. Uh, we had some uh, initial lab results which were released from Pfizer and BioNTech a few days ago and it showed um, the existing two-dose vaccine had a 25-fold reduction in protection from the Omicron mm -hmm. variant. But that boosting with the current vaccine likely increases protection. So, you know, look, these results are preliminary and, and more testing is required. So, you know, what more can you tell us? Well, look, that's a good summary. I think Given the this variant has just so many more new mutations that reside in such a critical area of the spike protein, uh, I'm not entirely surprised to see such a marked reduction in the vaccine efficacy like mm. what Pfizer has said. However, the, the Pfizer-BioNTech lab results also provide some good news, at least relative to what the South African lab disclosure, you know, just prior to it, where it suggested a 40-fold a reduction um, based on a very small sample size. So it's good news in that sense. And what the Pfizer data shows us is, yes, the current two-dose regimen of the existing vaccines, of its existing vaccines, aren't as efficacious against the Omicron variant. But, you know, we think it's still too early to say how this lab data actually translates into real-world protection, you know, against severe illness and, and deaths caused by Omicron. So on this note, I think it's important to mention that despite all of these changes that are flagged in, in the Omicron spike protein, there are many areas which also haven't changed. And there's an important part of the immune system, you know, which is directed by T-cells or called T-cell immunity, which can still remain active against these unchanged parts. And it's the presence of T-cell immunity that also has shown, you know, a stronger cor correlation with real-world protection against severe disease. So the Pfizer-BioNTech announcement and data also highlighted that T-cell immunity, 
generated by its vaccines were, were still present, was still present against the Omicron variant. But unfortunately, they just didn't give us any, any further details on that. Uh, but, you know, overall, what I think we can say with some degree of confidence is that, you know, the Pfizer announcement showed that boosting with its current vaccines, and this may also apply to boosting with other vaccines too, uh, appears to lift protection against the Omicron variant. And therefore, we think, you know, boosting will become a, a really important near term or let's call it stopgap measure until more specific boosters become widely available. And why I say stopgap, it's because the lift in protection provided by boosting with the existing vaccines, we think is likely to be short lived. And we think that, you know, an Omicron specific booster will be more likely required, particularly for the more vulnerable populations like the elderly and those with higher risk profiles for severe disease. And, you know, interestingly, we think it might also be a better strategy to boost with an Omicron specific variant, uh, vaccine, sorry, in anticipation of future waves, which, you know, are, are likely to emerge. So having said all of that, we, we still need more lab studies and perhaps more importantly, or just as important, is also gaining more real world evidence of Omicron and the type of disease it's cause, it causes. Uh, it may or may not cause severe disease, but we think the best way in determining this is by observing hospitalisation data and really tracking closely the uh, disease severity trends globally. And, you know, we're in the market are waiting for these lab results to emerge in the next few weeks, some more lab results, that is. But I think it's, you know, important to just, you know, step back and remember that just because you have a market reduction in vaccine efficacy shown by this lab data, it doesn't necessarily have to translate into a market redu market reduction to what we see in the real world. So it's it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. I just thought I'd clear that up. And that's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, protection from the virus is not just from antibodies from the vaccine, but also T-cell immunity and, and also presumably some immunity if you've already been previously exposed to a prior variant. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess that's why, you know, this is so difficult to predict, isn't it? You know, even for the best scientists. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, put, put really simply, the current vaccines have trained our immune systems or for those who have been vaccinated to look for a very specific pattern on the spike protein. And now that pattern has changed considerably. But, you know, many parts still remain unchanged. So the immune system, including the T cells, the neutralizing antibodies in both vaccinated people and in those who have recovered from prior infection or have infection or have some natural immunity, the immune system should still be able to remember these unchanged parts of the virus and therefore provide some level of protection. It may be sufficient to protect against severe disease and death, um, but we, we still don't know yet. But especially for those we think that have both recovered from COVID-19 infection in the past and have also been vaccinated, we think that they're in a, in a, in a pretty good spot. And so putting all of this together, we think countries with high vaccination rates that have also, you know, sadly experienced very high rates of community infection in the prior waves will likely be the best protected uh, 
against the Omicron variant from causing major strain on their healthcare systems. Uh, countries like the US, the UK, parts of Europe, and even some emerging markets like India, where the Delta variant, you know, was really quite um, was really quite a, a high level of community infection. So I think they're on the strongest footing. At the end of the day, I think you know preventing severe illness and deaths is the focus for most policymakers, and of course for you and I. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, one of the questions you know we've been asked is. You know, do you think lockdowns can be avoided? Yeah, well, I think it's going to be different for each country based on their their situations. And, you know, that's what really each policymaker's decisions will be based on. So far, hospitalisations have been a good indicator throughout the pandemic on, you know, assessing the risk of lockdowns coming. And, uh, and governments will certainly at this stage want to avoid any further pressure on the health, on the healthcare systems until more is known about Omicron. The difficulty posed by the emergence of Omicron right now is that we're still really in the midst of, you know, the Delta wave globally. And the Northern Hemisphere is just entering winter when generally cases seasonally inflect higher. So there's a lot of that uncertainty. Uh, So far, though, the early indications are that hospitalisation rates for Omicron appear low and vaccination rates are also starting to lift following, you know, the news that Omicron's out there. So these are good directional data points. But I think it'll still take take some time, perhaps a few months, to collect enough data to confidently say whether or not Omicron is going to pose a major threat to overloading healthcare systems, whether it be the efficacy of current vaccines or natural level of immunity to provide protection against severe disease, you know, we we still need a bit more information. So all of that considered, for now, we think policymakers will probably err on the side of caution. It'd be a pretty brave position to not implement any restrictions based on the evidence we have to date, which suggests Omicron is highly transmissible and that current vaccines, their efficacy is, is likely to be reduced. And there's still pretty significant portions of the population that are unvaccinated. So we still think that while we think there'll be a very, you know, generalised reluctance to implement stricter lockdown measures on the part of policymakers, uh, I think some measures will be taken, like the wearing of masks or increasing restrictions on the unvaccinated. So until we get the, the green light from either lab and or real world data, We think governments will continue right now to push for higher vaccination rates, increase restrictions on the unvaccinated as opposed to, you know, major lockdowns. And we're already seeing this occurring in some European countries like Germany. So we expect governments to prioritise boosters, make vaccines readily available, especially for the early and high risk populations uh, until we can see, you know, really what the data truly shows us about Omicron. Mm, I mean, there's still, you know, really a a fair bit of uncertainty, isn't there? Um, And and just referring to a comment you made earlier, if there is a reasonable chance an Omicron-specific booster will be required, what can we expect from here? Sure. Uh, So the mRNA vaccine manufacturers, Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna, 
have already started developing new booster vaccine candidates which are specific to the Omicron variant. So they should, in theory, recognise all of the mutations and changes that have occurred. And Pfizer indicated just the other day that you know that this booster, this specific booster, could become available in March 2022, obviously pending data being successful and the regulators approving it. And Moderna has also flagged, you know, a similar time frame for their Omicron-specific booster. We also think, you know, just in terms of the uncertainty for policymakers and lockdowns, you know, they will take some comfort now in having two new oral antiviral drugs to combat COVID-19. Both the Merck and Pfizer drugs that they've developed are highly likely to remain effective against the Omicron variant based on our analysis. But, you know, supply of these drugs will be limited and we think will only really be made available to the high-risk or immunocompromised patients. Uh, Another point to consider is we're probably going to have some more vaccines coming to market over the next few months, which could, you know, also lift vaccination rates globally via providing more supply. And you've also still got some antibody therapies out there that are coming and still available, uh, which can provide protection against Omicron infection for potentially up to a few months. So where to from here? We've got plenty in our arsenal to be able to cope with this. Uh, It's still going to depend on the lab data and more real evidence, real world evidence coming. Um, But I think in the fully vaccinated people and those who have, you know, recovered from prior infection, if they're only shown to, you know, really develop mild flu or cold-like symptoms, then I think this is, um, you know, the key thing that will, or it will be a good outcome in terms of, you know, the reopening continuing without the risk of big lockdowns. So until we have definitive data, monitoring hospitalisations will be a key measure to assess the risk posed by Omicron and the risk of further lockdowns. And, And Nick, is it fair to say this is one of the key metrics your team is tracking? Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, we are paying, also paying very close attention to what physicians and hospital operators are saying on the front lines. Uh, you know, while it's general, generally anecdotal feedback and with that we have to treat it with the usual caution, it's still important information. And I think we're also going to be looking at, you know, very specific outbreak areas and studies that will be published on those, on those clusters, mm. if you want to call it that. Nick, let's let's shift our attention to the portfolio. One of the largest positions is Sanofi, which is a top 10 holding um, in the global portfolios. Can you take us through the investment case? Uh, you know, Sanofi is also developing its own COVID-19 vaccine too, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. And Sanofi has multiple lines in the fire with regard to COVID vaccines. It has both a traditional protein-based adjuvant vaccine approach and it also has an mRNA candidate in development. Uh, The former or traditional approach, we should have data very soon. And, you know, look, despite Sanofi being a little bit late to the game, it's it's certainly not out of the COVID vaccine mix just yet. And I think, you know, Sanofi is given very little credit by the market for this. So, but, you know, what we more like about Sanofi in general is it's more than just a drug developer and it has a lot of options. A material proportion of its earnings, roughly 35% or so, comes from its vaccines and consumer health businesses combined. 
you know, both of which we believe are more defensive, long duration businesses compared with traditional drug development. On vaccines, Sanofi's a, a leading global manufacturer. It's one of only three scale flu vaccine manufacturers globally. It has a broad portfolio, including polio, meningitis, and other childhood vaccine regimens. It's also got a full pipeline, uh, which is expanding thanks to its mRNA technology that it's brought in house. And it's you know got targeting things such as pneumococcal, chlamydia, and it also has an antibody, uh, let's call it preventative vaccine for respiratory syncytial virus. So vaccines are highly attractive businesses in our view. They they require large scale manufacturing. They're highly regulated. They have high barriers to entry, and the market is really consolidated. And this they also you know have quite a lot of recurring revenues, which you know, in, in some cases are driven by government mandates or immunisation programs. So they're quite stable long-term businesses. And also, given there are a lot of central buyers like governments, the sales force required to support this these businesses are usually much smaller, which also allows for attractive margins. And just quickly turning to the consumer health business, it's also one of the largest of its kind globally. Uh, consumer health is your sort of over-the-counter medications and supplements. Uh, Sanofi has well-known brands. They're very stable. The business generates high free cash flow levels. And also, interestingly, I think is overlooked is that there's still room to consolidate this market further. And there's been a lot of interest in, in other companies looking to acquire consumer health businesses. So I think the underappreciated elements of the consumer health business is, you know, potential to develop drugs from prescription to over-the-counter, but also to unlock value by a, by a spin or, or, or a straight sale where we know peers trade on 25 times multiples and or more. And Sanofi's business, we think, could deserve a premium. So that's a bit of a snapshot there of why why we think it's interesting. Mm. And and what about patent cliff and drug pricing pressure? You know, these are typically the biggest risks for, for pharma companies, aren't they? Yes, correct. Uh, relative to other large pharma peers, though, Sanofi's portfolio is one of the least exposed to patent cliffs over the next decade. And it's also one of the least exposed to US drug pricing risks versus its peers. Uh, Sanofi, in its past, it did used to have outsized exposure to diabetes, uh, but since then the company's de-emphasised that focus and it's freed up a lot of resources to invest in its pipeline, to undertake M&A and also to boost margins. It has an attractive business as well in rare diseases where you know these portfolios often have more durable revenue streams versus other, versus other drugs particularly the orphan drugs, and generally face a lot less competitive threat. So the company has a, a strong balance sheet. It's got ample M&A firepower to help transform its pipeline. And the new management so far has executed very well on refocusing the business and through cutting costs, boosting margins. But I think, you know, it's important to sort of summarise that, you know, Sanofi's a business that's becoming reinvigorated after many years of mismanagement in our view. And you've got a vaccines business, rare disease, consumer health businesses that are all very defensive and stable. And, you know, acquisitions are picking up and are becoming much more rational and targeted in our view. 
margins are improving, the pipeline's starting to show signs of promise. So there's a lot to like in this for this company going forward. And just on the earnings front, they're growing in the low double-digit range. We think it's going to grow faster than what the market thinks. And it's also faster than what many more expensive peers are, are, are growing at. And the company's only valued at 11 times our earnings. So we think it's very cheap for this kind of outlook. And another key holding in the portfolio is Walgreens, which is mm-hmm. one of the largest pharmacy chains in the US. What makes Walgreens such a compelling investment? Look, uh, Walgreens has around 9,000 pharmacies in the US and you know, roughly 80% of the US population lives within five miles of a Walgreens. So the sheer scale of their physical presence is is a real competitive advantage. You know, it's last mile competitive advantage, we think is kind of unrivaled and really provides the springboard, you know, to pivot the platform into providing more services. And we think new management is is executing really well. They've expanded the omni-channel presence with the My Walgreens app. Walgreens pivoted to provide, you know, a lot more drive-through locations in the pandemic the home delivery options as well. These are all really key, important factors to keep Walgreens relevant over the longer term, you know, with the threat from online, et cetera. And so, you know, this pivot into providing more healthcare services, we think will begin to bear fruit over the next few years and, you know, really shift Walgreens a bit away from being so reliant on the traditional drug dispensing retail pharmacy operation that it's been historically. And, you know, one of the key pressure points on that traditional business has been the pharmaceutical benefit managers or PBMs in the US. They're the ones that have, you know, really gouged or, or put pressure on pharmacies to really by cutting the reimbursement, what they pay for them to dispense a drug to one of their covered or insured members. Now, the US system is pretty complex and opaque in a lot of areas and we won't get into the detail there. It'd take a whole nother podcast. But, um, you know, what has happened is these PBMs have consolidated over the last decade and they've really exerted their, their buying power on the pharmacies. And, you know, to the extent where some reimbursement is occurring to the pharmacy at a rate that's lower than what it costs them to buy and dispense the drug. But, you know, we think this is changing and the government's demanding greater transparency on drug pricing and reimbursement. And, you know, it may lead to pressure from the PBMs on these pharmacies to ease or not be as severe as it was in the past. And and that would be a positive. And we think also the pandemic has really shown the US government just how important it is to have a sustainable pharmacy industry. But, you know, that that's the past of, you know, the pressure that the business is seeing. But, you know, what really excites us is, yes, some of those pressures may be alleviating, but it's also that under the new CEO and the new strategy and direction, they're really looking to pivot and utilise this last mile and the retail footprint to start delivering healthcare services. And this strategy, you know, is not only a, a new long-term growth driver, but we think it's going to be more lucrative and a much more higher margin business than just filling scripts and, and doing retail like they have in the past. Mm. And what does the push into healthcare services involve? And and what does it mean for the long-term earnings growth profile of, of Walgreens? Walgreens is transforming its locations into being a health service provider. So they'll have health hubs where they'll provide 
healthcare services such as primary care, chronic disease management, blood draws, vaccinations, etc. And all the while, the traditional prescription and retail offering will continue. There are multiple avenues also to automate drug dispensing, which can free up the pharmacists to help provide more value-added services in the front of store. And so a key part of this strategy really hinges on Walgreens investment in Village MD. It's essentially a chain of primary primary care clinics across the US, which will be co-located at some Walgreens stores. Walgreens aims to have roughly 10% of its stores to have a Village MD over the next five years. So that's roughly 900 locations. And to complement the Village MD offering, Walgreens also plans to roll out these health corners in more than 30% of its locations. And these health corners are a part of the front of store, which will be dedicated and dedicated to healthcare services and staffed by pharmacists, nurses, and they can provide services like blood draws, blood pressure readings, chronic disease management and monitoring for like diabetes and hypertension. You know, you can see what's what's happening here. Walgreens is becoming this one-stop shop where you can go and see your doctor, you can get your test done, you can monitor your vitals and fill a prescription all in the one location. And the margin profile of these health services, you know, have the potential to be much higher than the traditional pharmacy business alone. So we think it'll become a material driver uh, if, if Walgreens continues to execute well on their plans. Mm, and, and, you know, I guess this strategy will also meaningfully increase Walgreens' long-term value proposition. That's right. And so the combined offerings, you know, this is really going to be the lowest cost of care location for US insurers, US health insurers. Their aim is to keep people out of hospital, which costs a lot more, and also shift their members to lower sites or lower cost settings of care. And if Walgreens is successful in coming up and executing on their vision, then they're gonna become a lot more valuable to the health insurance companies or managed care organisations as they're called in the US. And this is important because they're also the same owners of the, of the major PBMs. And so we think over time, this could really shift the power dynamic more towards being in favour or at least less in favour of the PBMs. And then it could allow Walgreens to leverage much better reimbursement for drug dispensing, whilst also, you know, seeing a lot more foot traffic as insurers see it as a low cost of care offering. So tying this all back to the numbers, the traditional retail pharmacy business their earnings should that earnings should grow about three to four percent per annum but when we add on the healthcare services offerings when it's fully ramped up the the combined business will be growing around 11 to 10 percent per annum and the company also sees potential for another two to three percentage points of growth per year to come from stock buybacks so putting that all together you've got a, a low double digit to low teens compound earning company that's trading on just 10 times forward earnings. You know, we we acknowledge it's early in the transformation strategy and the market isn't really reflecting any value for the health services opportunity yet. But we think it's the right we think it's the right strategy and they've got a really strong bench in place now. The new CEO at Ros and she's brought in a lot of wealth of experience across retail and we think that seeing proof of their execution over the next year or so 
is when investors will really start to pay attention. Nick, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, thanks for your time today. This, this is a topic that is evolving daily, but I think you've provided a great overview about the facts that matter and some interesting insights into those two healthcare names in our global portfolios. For more about our team and investment opportunities, visit antipodespartners.com and keep up to date by following our LinkedIn and Twitter accounts. And finally, have a safe and happy holiday period. We'll be back in the new year with more episodes. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions.